Due to the themes covered, this podcast is suitable only for adult audiences and not suitable for children. There is information at the end of this podcast about where you can go to get help. Pixels from a Crime Scene, Episode 2. It's not just an image. This is Episode 2 of Pixels from a Crime Scene, an in-depth look at the work of the Internet Watch Foundation and its partners and the battle to remove online child sexual abuse material. In the first episode, we heard about the scale of the problem. We explained why it is not child pornography, and we heard from one of the analysts who spends all day, every day, removing this material. Each image they take down prevents an abused child from being re-victimised. If you're just joining us, please make sure you download and listen to episode one first. This episode will focus on those children and the effects of both the abuse they suffered and of the knowledge that the pictures of their suffering are being viewed for sexual gratification. We'll hear the story of a young woman called Rhiannon who waived her right to anonymity to tell us what happened to her when she was 13. We'll hear from Tink Palmer of the Mary Collins Foundation, a charity helping victims of sexual abuse. And we'll hear the heartwarming story of the analyst who was able to identify and rescue a child. To feel like you can reach in and just pull a child to safety is, is like amazing. We're all on a cloud nine, just, just knowing that you've really helped a child and, and taken her out of danger. In episode one, we heard about the legal definitions of categories of abuse. And we heard why there's no such thing as child pornography. What I'm going to tell you now is hard to hear, but it's the awful truth about child sexual abuse material, also referred to as CSAM. It covers everything from the abuse of babies, even newborn babies, toddlers, schoolchildren, through to teenagers up to the age of 18. It includes children being raped by adults or adults directing a child to be abused in another country. It also covers grooming and live streaming of abuse. A third of the material the IWF sees now is self-generated content with children being coerced or frightened into performing sexual acts in front of a webcam. Each episode in this series aims to bust a myth. This time, why it is not only an image. When we talk about child sexual abuse material, we talk about acronyms and we talk about numbers, but this still involves the sexual abuse of a child being recorded and being shared. Every single image is a real child and every single child has been really sexually abused. So whether that image is 20 years old or one year old or a day old, whether it's been recirculated thousands of times, it's still a real child who suffered that sexual abuse. And that's why every single image matters. The knowledge that these images are being shared by people that you don't know is re-victimising every time that the child understands and thinks about it. There was an extremely harmful event taking place for that image to be made. And every time that's viewed, it just adds to that harm um, for, the, for the people that are the subject of these images, myself included. It's 
devastating to know that people are looking at those. Um, it's not a harmless activity. That was Denton Howard from InHope, the international network of hotlines, Susie Hargreaves of the IWF, Tony Stower from the NSPCC, and Rhiannon, and we'll hear more from her later in the episode. Tink Palmer has worked with children and their families for the past 40 years. In the last 25 of those, she specialised in victims of child sexual abuse, and she's now chief executive of the Mary Collins Foundation. I met her in London and asked her to explain why it is not just an image. Any child who is actually appearing in an image and they are naked or semi-naked, they are exposed sexually and physically and emotionally, that they have to understand that it is not just an image. When that image is taken, that child is actually the subject of sexual abuse. When they're asked and encouraged to appear without clothes on and often having to do things to themselves sexually to please the offender. And what people need to understand is it is not just images. If you can just say that to them, you are not just looking at an image. You're looking at a child who at some point was sexually abused or encouraged to behave in ways which they would never do offline. And it is, in fact, the sexual abuse of a child. What is the lasting effect of the, those resulting images on top of the abuse itself? Varies, of course, because every child's different, just as every adult is different. But generally you'll find that they feel incredibly shameful. And what happens is we call it the double whammy of silencing for disclosure because they feel culpable, even though they're not. They feel in some way that they were involved in that process and they daren't tell anyone. But sometimes it's not they daren't tell anyone. There's about four scenarios we recognise regarding why children don't tell when they've been the subject of abusive injury. The first one is they actually believe the guy's their boyfriend and they love him and he loves them and, and so they don't see it as an issue because he's my boyfriend and, and he's really so important to me. And if you think back to your teens, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, first love, that is my boyfriend, he loves me, and of course he's groomed her into thinking that. You then have situations where they're just too scared to tell anyone because they have been threatened um, and they have been told that the consequences of telling will be probably that they're going to send the images to other people or they're going to tell other people about their behaviour. So you have the what I call in-love scenario, yeah, this is a problem, I don't know what you're talking about. You have the one where they're too scared to tell. You also have the one where... They just would not tell anyone because they just feel shameful about it. Which of us would want to tell someone, you know, about an abusive image or an image taken of us in a sexual pose or whatever? And that is the problem. The disclosure, there's a double whammy which stops disclosure by children when they've been the subject of abusive imagery. I've only known since 1998 when I had my first internet case, up to the present day, I've only known of two children who have actually disclosed openly disclosed and gone to someone and said, this has happened to me. That double silence of the shame and the fear of what people are going to think of them. Yeah. And they also have this awful feeling of, my goodness, what if anyone else has seen that image? You know, And what we have developing them for young people is people call it, they get paranoid. Yeah. They think everyone's seen that image. I'm walking down the street, I bet he knows that I've seen the image. I qualify the term paranoia and I call it 
rational paranoia, because I would be like that. Another sad truth about the work of the IWF is that so many images they find they've seen before. They've simply been uploaded somewhere else as soon as they're taken down. But thanks to some technical advances, the IWF are making huge strides in getting those images removed more quickly, sometimes even before they can be uploaded. Sarah Smith is the technical projects officer at the IWF. Many of the images that we see do show the same victims over and over again. So once the image has been taken down, unfortunately, it will then be reposted. We have a variety of of technical tools that we work with in-house. One of those is the IWF hash list. So where we have identified that an image is criminal, we will create a hash, which is essentially a digital fingerprint that uniquely identifies that image. We put that on our hash list and that is provided out to service providers within the industry to make sure that they can identify when that image is seen again to make sure it's removed. We assess the age range of children. Obviously, it can be quite difficult to know exactly what age the child is. So we will normally be looking within age ranges of 0 to 2, 3 to 6, 7 to 10, 11 to 13, 14 to 15 and 16 to 17. Obviously, it's much more difficult to um, assess the age of of children once they're at the higher age ranges. So we work with a variety of training providers, including uh, the Victim ID team at the National Crime Agency, to really properly understand how we can make these assessments. I think a lot of people are often very shocked to realise that this is actually content that is sometimes sold commercially. We've seen a huge increase in the amount of what we would term self-generated content in recent years, which is where we are seeing young children typically being groomed or coerced into sexual activity via webcams. And sadly, offenders are taking permanent recordings of that, posting it online, and this, this content is actually available for people to buy. As technical projects officer, I work with the tech team here to make sure that we're always horizon scanning. It is sadly always an arms race to keep up with this. The people who are distributing this content are often early adopters of technology. So it's vital that we work with with the um, major providers within the IT industry to make sure that we're keeping on top of these trends. One of the recent innovations that we have in-house is the IWF crawler. We use our IWF hash list of unique fingerprints for these images. And this crawler goes out and searches through the web for any instances we see of these images so that we can make sure that we take action to take that down. We're currently also working in innovating automatic classification uh, using artificial intelligence so that we can then find images that perhaps haven't been seen before and hopefully that's going to enable us to take action to better safeguard victims. Later in the podcast we'll be hearing from Rhiannon who was a victim of online grooming and who now works to protect other young people from falling prey to online predators. One of the aims of this podcast series is to make people aware not only of the scale of the problem but also of the fact that this abuse is taking place in what was thought to be the comfort of people's own homes. Simon Bailey, Britain's top child protection officer, was horrified by one case he'd seen. She is being groomed where she is being told by her abuser to insert objects into her body while she's upstairs in her her bedroom. And during the course of the audio of this video, you can hear... The mum saying to the daughter, darling, dinner's ready. 
I think the real message here is that parents often have no idea what their children are doing online. Now, I said we'd be hearing from a victim of grooming. It's taken Rhiannon many years to decide whether she should tell her story. In the next few minutes, you'll understand why. You'd never know if you met Rhiannon now what she went through as a teenager. She's now using her experience to help educate other young people and parents to understand the risks. I asked her to tell me what had happened to her. Rhiannon, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. Could you talk us through what happened to you? When I was 13 years old, um, I was speaking to somebody online and they pretended to be a female model. Um, They complimented me and talked me into sharing images of myself online and then managed to get my personal contact details and the man came to my house the following morning and sexually assaulted me. How did it get that far that quickly? The day that we were initially talking, it was just a course of a few hours and just so much information was gathered by this person in the space of those few hours. And did you genuinely think it was a girl similar age to you? Yes. Um, While I was speaking to her, as I thought at the time, I didn't actually question um, whether she was who she said she was. And what was it that made you feel that way? What were the tricks this person was using? Well, the first was that she she actually sent me photos um, that were supposedly of her. That was quite a common thing when I was that age, that the initial question would be ASL, you know, age, age sex location, um, to see who you were talking to. And then it, as the time went on, it became ASL pick. So you would have to send a picture to prove who you were. Um, so she sent me a picture of a young woman, probably early 20s, which is what she said she was. And I thought, okay, that's her. Were the pictures in any way explicit? The pictures that I sent to her, yes. What made you at 13 think that was the right thing to do? There'd been this long conversation where, you know, we were just talking about a lot of everyday things and she had been heaping on the compliments of how pretty I am, I'm beautiful. As a 13-year-old with the normal low self-esteem, you know, who wouldn't appreciate that? So um, she said that she was a model. She said she thought I could be a model too because of how pretty I was. And she encouraged me to send more photos of um, like a full-length photo with my clothes on. And then she progressed to saying, well, actually, I do some topless modelling, which earns me a bit more money. And, you know, maybe you could do that as well. And then she asked for those pictures and that's how it progressed. Um, But once she had that very first explicit photo, everything switched very quickly and she wasn't nicey-nicey and complimenting me anymore. It was 
I've got this proof now and I'm going to use it against you. How did she find your address? Well, um, during the conversation, we'd been talking about where I where I lived, where I grew up, you know, who I lived with. And she said that she knew people in the area or the town that I lived in. So, you know, landmarks were being pointed out as to, oh, do you know this place? And is it near this place? And what school do you go to? And so what happened next? Um, she told me that her boss was going to come and meet me the following morning to take some photos for a portfolio. Um, I was terrified and I didn't really want this to happen, but she was telling me that she'd already spoken to him and that I couldn't back out now. Um, so this is where she brought in a male persona. Yes. Yeah. And... So I went to sleep that night thinking, God, I hope I hope nothing happens really. Um, I woke up in the morning, I got a phone call from him um, saying I'm on my way. And, you know, my, um, my stepmom at the time was at home and she came in and said to me, I'm just popping into town, do you want to come with me? And I was like, oh, my God, I, I don't even know what to do because on the one hand, I really want to go with her and not be here if he turns up. And on the other hand, like, I just want her out of here and to not find out about any of this. So I didn't really know what was best. And, and you stayed? I stayed and I told her that I wasn't feeling so good. So she went um, without knowing anything was was wrong. I had a spur of the moment, if I go out now, then no one's here and nothing will happen. And I left the flat. Um, So I went downstairs and I started walking down the street and I saw a man leaning against the wall and my blood went cold and I thought, oh my God, that's him. Now, where we lived, um, there was a, like a, a builder's yard next to us and there was always big strong men uh, doing doing the work next to us and they they always recognized me and they'd say hi as I walked past and for a second I thought I could tell them and they would do something um but then I was just terrified because I thought if I tell them they're gonna call the police they're gonna tell my dad everyone's gonna find out what I'd done so I ran back upstairs and then I got another phone call from him and he said, I'm outside. I've seen you go back in. That's you, isn't it? And he came up the stairs to our front door and I opened the door to him and it was a door that opened outwards. So he, as soon as I done opened it to look, he opened it and he walked in. Um, and he's quite a, a a big man. He's quite tall, quite large. I didn't really feel that I could push him back. I, I, I did think for I did think a long time. You know, oh, it's my fault because I have let him in. But you know, opening the door and him pulling the door open and forcing his way through, pushing past me, is a very different 
thing, so... Was there any pretense at friendship? Yes. Um, he came with his um, equipment, with his... He had this big camera, like a quite a professional-looking camera, um, and he had this case with all sorts of things in. He told me that he had printed the images that I had sent the day before and he had those with him and he had those on discs. So if I were to say anything or do anything, he'd be sending those straight out and he'd be posting them around my home and he'd make sure my parents got them and everything. Um, so to begin with, yeah, he was um, he was still pretending that this was modelling photos. But with hints of threat. Yes. And then... He um, he was taking explicit photos of me. He made me do things to myself and he did things to me and he made me do things to him and he took photos of all of it. And I remember actually that at one point he said, come on, you don't look very happy. You need to look like you're enjoying it. And I felt sick. <laughs> um, at one point I said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do any more. Um, please, can you go? And he said, well, I've not got everything I wanted yet. Um, and I said, no, I don't, I don't want to do anything else. <clears throat> and he said, well, just let me do this one more thing and then I'll go. So I had to let him do something else and, and, then, and then he left. Rhiannon didn't feel she could tell anyone because of what she'd done, which is exactly the purpose of the grooming. But the man was arrested by police in connection with another victim, and they found photos of Rhiannon and tracked her down. The man threatened to plead not guilty till the 11th hour, which would have meant Rhiannon giving evidence, but he changed his plea at the last minute and was sent to prison. But for Rhiannon, that was not the end of the matter. The shame lasts for years. She explains what it feels like knowing that people were looking at those images for their own gratification. Sick. It is, it's sickening. Um, it's an awful feeling that somebody is enjoying those images. Um, I'd be frightened that somebody could recognise me, um, that somebody might know that that's, that's me. Even if they're pulled offline, there could be many people that have those in their own personal private collections that are on their own computers, and I don't know where they are. The issue of being recognised is a very real fear for survivors of child sexual abuse. Susie Hargreaves, chief executive of the IWF, heard an awful story from one survivor who we'll call Tara, who's using her experiences to help others. So I met a really wonderful young woman in the States quite recently and she had been rescued when she was uh, 12, she's now 21 and she very bravely talks about her experience. She had been sexually abused for years and years and years. She was told that from the police that one of her images had been shared 70,000 times. She talked to me and she said, it's not even 
the thought that every time you go into a, a public space that someone there might have seen you online. She said, I feel physically scared all the time. She said one day she was in a shopping mall and a man came up to her and said he recognised her from her pictures on the internet. So she is living with that physical fear and the knowledge that she doesn't know who's seen her every single day. And that's why when you look at that one image, just think about her because she's a real person and her life has been utterly ruined by this experience. While Rhiannon was abused by a stranger who groomed her online, the sad truth is that most victims, like Tara, are abused by people they know, frequently family members. The IWF's main job is to remove the images from the internet. They also work closely with the police on victim ID when they spot a new child. Paul, one of the analysts, told me about the time he was able to track down a child. We were just looking through um, a, a public report that had come in. Um, there was a web page where there was uh, quite a few images, uh, and, and one of them, I, I just sort of, you could tell that the child was in the UK. You could tell by the, the room that she was in, her bedroom, the clothes she was wearing, the sort of furniture that was in the room. It just really sort of identified that it was a UK room. So, yeah, we started looking a bit closer at the image to see if we can find anything to actually find out whereabouts in the UK that child was. Uh, so the child was in her PE kit from school and she had a little uh, emblem on her top uh, and we used uh, a few sort of search terms to try and sort of figure out exactly whereabouts that school was and, and we found the school. So we basically took all, all the images and we took the pictures of the child, we found contact details for that school and we passed all that information across to the police uh, and given them as much detail as we could about what we'd seen on the imagery. We sent that off on the Wednesday and then by the Friday the, the police had phoned us back uh, and said that the, the child had been groomed for a number of years and they'd managed to safeguard her and put her into safety. Both Rhiannon and Paul's stories have happy endings. The girl with the badge was rescued and Rhiannon has used her experience to prevent other young people from falling victims to abuse. But the sexual abuse of children can have lifelong consequences, as was the case for Tara. Tony Stower is Head of Child Safety Online at the UK's leading children's charity, the NSPCC. We know that young people who suffer abuse in childhood in the early stages of childhood are far more likely to go on and develop a serious mental health condition by the time they're 18. So that's uh, coupled with the cuts in uh, child and adolescent mental health services means it's really important for services like NSPCC to focus on helping children get back on track. So what is the internet industry doing about this? Tony says not nearly enough. So the tech industry, or many of these internet companies, seem to forget that children have particular needs. So they tend to treat all, all the users who are over the age of 13 as if they are adults. And we know that children are particularly vulnerable in those teenage years. All the risks that children face online are as, as a result of design choices that the creators of Facebook, Twitter and Google have already made. And we think it's really important that those companies that make the choices to allow adults to freely share images of child sexual abuse or to access children and send them sexual messages using known grooming techniques, which we think it's really important that those companies put in place the controls. That's where we can have the most impact. That's where we can protect the most children. And he's not alone in that view. Hani Farid is Professor of Computer Science at Berkeley, California. He specialises in the analysis of digital images. 
you can't simply just say we are doing everything we can. That, that is, a, that is a, a vacuous statement. And we've been hearing that, by the way, for the last 10 to 15 years. You clearly are not because if tens of millions of pieces of content are going through your services every single year, you, there's clearly a problem with, with the way you're approaching this problem. And what you will hear from them is, well, we did A, B, C, and D. We took down this. We did this. We did that. And, and that's all fine and good. But what they're, what they're not telling you is what they're not doing. And so the companies are very keen on, on giving you numbers. But the problem with those is that they hide the reality that this stuff is still out there and they know it. We'll hear more from Hanny and also the response from people in the industry in future episodes. Next time, though, we'll focus on the offenders how they followed the path that led to their viewing those images and what a devastating effect it had on their lives and their families' lives when they were caught. Getting that knock on the door is, for most people, a massive shock, utterly unexpected. And then the penny drops as to not only why the police are there, but what they've been doing. So they're, suddenly their shameful, guilty secret about their, what they may not have seriously thought about as illegal or harmful behaviour is suddenly exposed not only to law enforcement and potentially through courts, to the public, but also to loved ones. If you've been affected by anything you've heard in this podcast and need to know where to get help, you can visit iwf.org.uk forward slash podcast. The IWF is a charity and urgently needs to extend its work. To support them financially, please visit iwf.org.uk forward slash fundraising. This is a Cambridge podcast production for the IWF. It was produced by me, Angela Young, and Vince Hunt. The music is by Jay Richardson, sound design and mixing by Jeff Bruman, and the artwork is by Louis Sarabia. Join me next time. <laughs>